hello once again and welcome. Um, if you would please pray with me. God of grace and mercy, God who is near to us in all times and ways and things, help us to know your presence and be transformed by it. You are so unexpected, God, in the way that you love us, in the way that you allow us to love others. Help us, oh God, to feel and to see and to hear those signs, which are signs of your growth and your glory and your fruits. Help us to be a part of them. And if we aren't, if our movements, our hearts, our souls, our actions towards others would not be of accord with your love and your joy, well, then help us to forgive ourselves and forgive others and to turn around and live a different way the next time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. These words from this passage and from others, it is a tragedy to me, an unfortunate occurrence, a sadness, that those words have somehow become like words of threat in our culture, right? The kingdom is near. Watch out. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might be in trouble. It's something we talk about as being on the signs of people who scare us or don't like us or are strange or are odd. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's certainly true that in this scripture, it is something of a warning, although I wouldn't call it a threat, right? Be awake, be alert. <laughs> the kingdom of God is near. It can come at any time. Things can change at any time, and they can change in any way. It is saying, think about it. <laughs> be aware. Be prepared. But it's not a threat. It's a promise, right? The kingdom of God to Jesus is a good thing. It's a vision and a dream of how things will and can be and the ways in which they can be different from the hardship and the oppression and the challenge we often experience on this earth. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to so many things in the scripture. Um, mustard seeds and yeast and coins and lambs, that the kingdom of God will be a place where all things are brought together and valued, where the small becomes big. But here in this scripture, Jesus says, it's like figs. They grow and they grow over time. You might not experience the whole fruit of what justice and joy and hope and love and mercy look like in your lifetime on earth, but you will see the leaves. Don't ignore them when they come. <laughs> Pay attention when you see signs and wonders and little indications of something beautiful and something good in the world. The kingdom of at hand. This is a promise for how we can live our life, like there's a layer just underneath of beautiful things that we can see through the surface that can become a part of our life if we let them. That, to me, is what this season is all about, this Advent season that we start today. The first Sunday of Advent is for church Happy New Year! <laughs> so, Happy New Year, right? We are starting a new church year. 
Um, we're not even particularly liturgical at Urban Village. You won't see all of the particular feast days, although if you ever want to celebrate one, let us know. We're always open. Um, but we do Advent and we do Lent because there is something about those seasons, something about the way they talk about who God is and what life is and what we're doing here that is incredibly beautiful and that is formative for who we want to be and how we want to be in the world. Advent means um, like breaking in, coming, something is coming, something is happening that we're waiting for. Uh, and it talks about the fact that we're waiting for Christmas, right? We're waiting for Jesus to be born as Jesus was thousands of years ago, but that we're also waiting for something bigger, for heaven to come to earth and for us to be transformed into new ways of relating to one another, new ways of being that reflect the fullness of God's promises for what it means to be human. That there are ways we can be more joyful, hopeful, loving, and just than we think we can. And that when we see the buds, when we see those figs coming to fruit, we can become more of who we hope to be and more of who Jesus promises us we can be. We've been thinking about that a lot at the church in terms of something called the transformational values. Uh, Sarah just testified to you really beautifully, um, and I'm hoping we can put that up on the podcast so folks can hear it, about uh, the anti-racist audit that we've gone through the last couple of years, which has been a process we went through with a nonprofit partner called Crossroads for us to sort of discover where in our church life can we discover um, how racism makes itself known in ways both conscious and unconscious in our institutional life, our personal life, and our spiritual life, and what are things we can do about it to change ourselves and our structure so that we might be a force for anti-racism in the world, which we think is being a force for Jesus in the world. And one of the things I love about Sarah's story is that she tells a story of the way in which once you say that you have certain values, they keep calling you back to actually live them out. <laughs> the easiest thing in the world as a person or as a community is to say that you have a certain value, but then slowly creep away from it because the world is a hard place to live out good values and because the world is a place that's constantly teaching us a set of harmful, painful, individualistic, rejecting values. The world is constantly teaching us a certain way to be. So even if we say what I want to be is loving, we enter a world that makes us think of ourselves as separate from others, or like we don't have enough energy, or just hard things happen to you, and then it becomes hard to live like a loving person. And the thing about stating those values as a group is that then you remind one another of them, right? So they taught, Sarah's church taught her, do not hinder the little children. And then they started, list, you know, right, like the world started to come in. We started to think, oh, no, but if we do that, what risk will we take? Who might leave? What wrong thing might we do? What law will we be breaking? But because they had said the value, someone could say, no, no, guys, we said this. What would that mean here? And that's exactly what happened to us with anti-racism. We have always been a church that talked about racism and the role of race in the world and how we want it to be an anti-racist church, but we definitely haven't always lived it. <laughs> but because we say it out loud, people keep calling us back and saying, is that really who we said we wanted to be? Is that really who Jesus wants us to be? Or might we make different choices and do different ways? 
And these transforming values are how I think we do that. So Crossroads made these, and I wanna talk a little bit, we're gonna talk a little bit about all of them today, and then we're gonna focus on one each Sunday. So this is kind of how the world is, and then how the world might be. And the values on the left are what we call white institutional values. And so that's less about white individuals, right? Lots of white individuals can, can act on values that are on the right side, and lots of people of color can act on values that are on the left side. It's about in a system of white supremacy, right, in a system of interlocking oppressions that's in charge of everything and a part of everything and has been for hundreds of years, what are the values that have built up over time in almost all of our institutions that we're sort of subject to whether or not we choose it? Like whether or not we, we assent to them or consciously do them, what are the things we're being formed and shaped by all the time? That's the left side. Which means the right side usually takes a little bit of effort. It takes a little bit of conscious, oh, I have to, I have to get out of this pattern that my mind and heart are in. I have to actively think about what would it mean to live differently. So they are white institutional values. The world teaches us either or, right? Only one thing at any given time, only one direction, only one person, only one way of being is right. Either or, black or white, one right thing, everything else wrong. Right, we see this in all kinds of ways just embedded into our life. I was saying to somebody, um, it, it's funny how it, how it gets in there. Why is it a naughty or nice list, right? Why, like why, why are we teaching our children that there are two ways to be, bad or good, you pick one, it's all over. It's such a strange lesson, but we don't even think about it, right? Because it's just so natural to the way our culture forms us to think about life. There's one good way to be, everything else, either or, pick one. But a transformational value is both and. Both and. Lots of things are true at once. Lots of people are true at once. If we're going to live into a world in which lots of human giftedness and lots of cultures share power and share space and share community, we're going to have to both and a lot of stuff. We're going to have to be a lot of things at once. We're going to have to affirm that difference isn't scary. Difference isn't an invitation to look at all the differences and pick the one that's good. <laughs> it's an invitation to look at all of them and say, what good can I learn about and be formed by in all of this stuff? So we're gonna talk about both and today, but I wanna introduce the other three. The second one is moving from scarcity to abundance. So often our institutions in our life have a real mindset of scarcity. There's only so much to go around, you gotta fight for it, right? There's only so much in the budget, we can't support that thing that you tell us is important. Nope, sorry. We can't increase wages. We can't do health care. We can't make your life better. We couldn't possibly feed everyone in the world. There's just not enough. All resources are scarce. We hear this so often, you start to not even notice when people are saying it because it seems like such a true thing about the world. Resources are scarce. Everything is scarce. I got to fight for it, right? I'm in a rat race. There's only so much cheese. Uh, but God's world, God's intention, God's purpose is to say, you live in a world of abundance. I have made enough and more than enough, and what if you lived like it? And this enters into our life in a couple of ways. One is that there's just actually enough, even of the things we think are scarce. There is enough money for everyone to be okay. There is enough food for everyone to be fed, and yet, our systems of distribution ensure harm and poverty and pain. 
there is enough. And then there's an additional kind of abundance, which is that even in a small location where it always seems like there aren't enough dollars or there isn't enough that, dollars aren't the only way to count what you have, right? Even if you don't have the dollars to pay the rent, you are gifted beyond measure with joy or friendship or the ability to sing or the ability to scramble and hustle and make a way out of no way. There is abundance in all of the things that aren't the ways we usually measure our lives. God's world is abundant. And every time we move from a scarcity mindset to an abundant mindset, we are moving towards the kingdom, towards the fruition of those kingdom values, and towards the ability to be more anti-racist in our institutions and communities. The third is from secrecy to transparency. From secrecy to transparency. So secrecy, um, it becomes rarer and rarer as you grow older for you to hear someone saying like, keep this a secret, right? So we don't always see all the ways that secrecy enters our lives, but we do start to hear things like need to know basis, right? Need to know basis. Not everybody needs to know about that. Not everybody needs to be in the room where it happens. Not everybody needs to be in the room where the decisions get made. Those are forms of secrecy that don't call themselves secrecy. If not everyone has access to knowing what's going on and knowing how they might impact what's going on, big parts of it are being kept a secret, even if nobody said it was a secret at all. And secrecy functions to keep power wherever power already lived, right? That's what secrets do. They function to keep power where power already lived. And the other place where I see secrecy in our culture is that secrecy is the currency of shame. Anything that we feel shame about tells us, keep that a secret, right? That happened to you, that's who you are, keep it a secret. If you say it out loud, other people might shame you, other people might not love you. What if God finds out that that's how you really are, that that's how things really are? I have people say that to me, right? I don't want to say that out loud. Because what if that's true about me and my community doesn't love me or my parents don't love me or God doesn't love me? But the truth of the world is that God knows everything <laughs> that has ever been and ever was and ever will be. God knows it all. It is transparent to God and God has said, you are good and I love you. And so if we can be transparent to God, why not try being transparent with each other? And this doesn't mean getting rid of all like privacy or confidentiality. You are not forced to like let your wounds be known to the world stage to everyone if there are things you want to keep to yourself. But it means that in our group and institutional life, we should basically always say, if I'm feeling an instinct to keep something under wraps, why am I feeling that instinct? And is it actually for a good reason? Because most of us have been trained to keep everything a secret unless otherwise. And I think we'd be healthier if we said, let's just say everything out loud unless I have an active good reason that it would hurt somebody to, to not, say, you know, to like to let it be known. We just need to combat our instincts and move in the opposite direction. Transparency is good. And when we get to Transparency Sunday, we're going to talk about the fact that um, transparency requires access, which has been a big learning curve for us at Urban Village is that we thought we were transparent as long as everything was out there. But if you're not communicating it in a way that people can actually receive it <laughs> and have access to it, you're still not transparent at all. Okay, so fourth 
And this one I would say is actually in all of them. This to me is one of the core, like, capitalist, white supremacist, harmful, non-Jesus-y, like all of the systems that, that hurt us, individual to collaboration. That all of our instincts, all of what we're taught about is individual action, individualism, do it yourself, rely on yourself, it's all on you, it's all on the great heroes, but in fact we can move into collaboration and cooperation. Collaboration and cooperation. Um, I, I don't want to spoil it because, in case you haven't seen it, but this is one of the things that I think is the most interesting about Crazy Rich Asians, which is one of my favorite movies of the year, um, which I just feel like I've been waiting for it all my life. Uh, but it's, it's so beautiful and it's so sweet. And there's, you know, a lot of things we could say about class and money, but we're going to put that aside for a minute. Um, but that it really upends the way in which every single American romantic comedy of the last 20 years is basically like, your family and community think one thing. You're different, and now you'll be different forever, and that's how you'll be liberated and find love, <laughs> is by being an individual who is no longer burdened by your family and community, right? When you really think about it, like this is the hero's journey of every American movie. Um, and Crazy Rich Asians, I won't tell you how, uh, upends that a little bit, right? It says like maybe that's not actually the choice that is facing all of us. Maybe communities can be good. <laughs> and maybe there are ways in which to have individual expression and creative freedom within communities that we still find ourselves bound to and within collaborations that can be healthy and life-giving and done in good ways, not just burdensome ways. So these are the four values that we're trying to move into. And we're gonna spend a Sunday on each of them this Advent because I think if Advent is anything, it's thinking about what would it mean to prepare our souls and hearts for the kingdom. And I think this is kind of the way we do it. <laughs> for me, I found that these values don't just impact the way that I think about anti-racism and institutions. They impact the way that I think about basically my every instinct about who I am as a person and like what I'm trying to do in the world. And I feel freed every time I find a way to adopt one of the transformational values. But today is either or, both and. Moving from an either-or space to a both-and place. How can we be both-and people in our lives and in all of our environments? And I want to start just by thinking about how much that either-or is in, right? It's the naughty or nice list, but it's also the ways in which um, we think of all of these values as diametrically opposed. Every value we, we see, we put it in one box or another, one community or another. I had the most interesting conversation right when I started at Urban Village where I was at a meeting of pastors across the state of Illinois and I was at a table and um, the gentleman who I was talking to had heard of Urban Village and we were talking about different ministry stuff and I said, you know, one of the things I love about Urban Village is the, um, the like, the uh, evangelical programs there of like reaching out, but in reaching out in ways that like aren't manipulative, that are honest, and like we're always trying to tell people, hey, this is here if you want it, you know? I love that we like maintain that spirit, you know? And that we talk about God out loud. And I was sort of talking about all those things that I really loved about the community. And he said, but I thought you were inclusive. And I said, oh yeah, we are, yeah, totally. You know, queer affirming, queer leadership, both at the level and the staff level, like God made queer people. And he said, oh, okay, so you're not evangelical. <laughs> and I said, well, no. I mean, I, I probably define it differently than some other people, but, like, we really love Jesus. We really think that outreach is good and, good and important. Like, in those ways, definitely. And he said, oh, so you're not inclusive. <laughs> and we went back and forth, I swear to you, four or five times, where I was like, I don't 
know how to make this clearer. We do both of the things. I think it's okay. I think people are moved by it. And he just could not handle that a place might care about both of those category of thing and that they didn't have to prevent each other. Just couldn't, couldn't make it work. And I think we do that with a lot of stuff in our everyday life, right? We're like, no, things that are this way are this way. Things that are this way are this way. And never the twain shall meet, right? Um, and, and, though, and facing that in other people often limits our own ability to be fully who we are, right? Can you be really powerful and really feminine and wear nail polish, right? Like, can you be really queer and sex positive and inclusive and also like want to raise kids? You know, the, these, these ways in which people approach us by saying these two things can't possibly go together are ways that we limit each other <laughs> and often ways that we limit ourselves. Ways that we limit ourselves. Um, this, it's interesting to me, spiritual but not religious. And I have a friend who says religious but not spiritual. And I always think, does that mean that you think spirituality can't involve a community, right? Or it can't involve a structure? Um, what are we saying when we make these either or statements in our lives? And how are we putting boundaries around what might be free spaces of exploration for us? What choices are you forcing yourself to make each day that maybe you don't have to make? Where maybe you could say, it's both at the same time. And the biggest way that that has come into my anti-racist journey as a white person, um, so th this is probably old news to the people of color in the room, but um, a big thing for me in my first couple of years of anti-racism was how do I figure out what the not racist thing to do is? Right? So as a white person, my job is there's bad racist stuff and there's good not racist stuff and I pick the second one and then I become the good non-racist person. You know, it was very like, that's my plan. Turns out when you live in a racist world, most of the, most of the options before you are like implicated in some way in racism and bad systems. And so it becomes picking what's the lesser of two evils, right? Or what's the thing that's more productive? Or what's the thing that just the people of color in my community say is the right way to go? And so I go, okay, because I'm not the expert, right? Like, there's all kinds of ways in which um, I realized that I had been, even though I talked a big game about all the different ways to live, still inside of me, I think there's only one right direction. And anytime I'm faced with a choice, I have to pick the good one or everything else crumbles. That's just an assumption that my brain and spirit make, and it's an, it's an assumption that's not true. <laughs> There's actually lots of ways forward. There's actually lots of ways that God can transform and change you. Um, and being anti-racist in your commitments does not mean you will never do anything racist and never have to say sorry and never have to think things through again. You know, What I wanted was um, freedom from the burden of discernment by, by picking a good identity and then being able to live into it. But it turns out what actually is the case is that like life is really messy, messy and every single choice is really messy and we have to invite God into that, into a both end world where we have a set of values we're trying to live by and we pretty consistently mess it up and have to review again. And that's not something to feel shame and guilt about, that's something to be realistic about so that we can be builders of our communities and so that we can be reflective and listening people. And it comes into our lives in all kinds of ways. You are not either one thing or another, you are both and. And your community is not one thing or another, it is both and. 
communities often find, right, you try and have multiple musical styles or you try and have multiple leadership styles, meetings that are led in a couple of different ways. And someone will be like, no, but we picked the best way, the best way to lead the meeting, right? Or we picked the best music, the best genre. Um, and they are genuinely feeling stress about that and it is genuinely not necessary. <laughs> all the things can be true at once and we can celebrate all the things at once, even if it's weird, even if we're unsure, and we can find God in that messy, gray awesomeness. A lot of people when they come to this community say, I feel really pulled to God, I also have a lot of doubts, right? I really feel a faith, I really have doubts too. And I say, well, welcome to the club of almost everybody who has ever loved God, <laughs> right? It's only our current culture that teaches you that you have to be one or the other. In fact, most of the people of God have been both. No, I think that there are limits, there are edges, but I'm saying our instincts are too far in this direction and we have to retrain them to be more embracing of the other direction. I would say this is a good question. There are still boundaries, right? There are still edges and I would say harm is the direction by which I find the edge and the boundary. What harms others? But our instincts have gone too far in the you can only pick one, you can only choose one adventure. And so if we're gonna become people of goodness and wholeness and righteousness and mercy, the work today is to find ourselves swinging towards the other side of the pendulum where we can see a different and more diverse world than we might have been prepared for. More multiplicity than we may assume. And if the pendulum ever swings too far in that direction, then we'll push it right back. <laughs> So this is the task before us, to live into new values and to talk with one another about the ways in which living into those values is hard and complicated and we might need each other for it. So this is the task, this is what we'll be doing all Advent and luckily, individual collaboration, we have each other in that work and I invite you to it, amen? Amen. amen.